to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today our guest is Rob Overstreet. Rob is a legacy cash flow specialist, capital raiser, syndicator, real estate investor, and the CEO of Harbor Drive Holdings. Rob's firm has successfully syndicated over $25 million of apartment real estate to date and focuses primarily on opportunities located in the Midwestern and Sunbelt regions of the United States. So welcome to the show, Rob. How are you doing today? Great, Eileen. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Rob. So I'd love to get into your background a little bit, if you can please share, you know, like where you come from, what your background is and how you got started in real estate. Yep. Based in San Diego, Southern California. I've born and raised in Southern California, but we've lived in San Diego for 20 years. I studied at San Diego State, graduated with my degree in economics. I met my wife there and we really just never left. I have a background in hospitality. Um, For many years, I worked for a company called Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. And I worked a little bit on the corporate side. I was helping to open new locations and traveling a bit. And But the home base was in San Diego. And after that, I got into business for myself. I purchased a franchise business of a Minuteman Press that I operated for many years. Here in San Diego, we were able to raise revenue six times during my time with that business. And um, so we built the business out. But somewhere along that timeline, I started to educate myself and become interested in the real estate space and investing. And I realized that there was a better way to create generational wealth than what I was previously taught and what I was, what I was doing. And so I started going to trainings and networking you know, with other real estate operators and reading lots of books and listening to folks talk about the business and the benefits and just putting you know one step in front of the other until I met one of my early mentors in the business. This was probably six or so years ago. And we started looking at deals together in different markets, apartment deals. And again, just baby steps. We started putting offers out and eventually got one under contract that we closed. And then from there, um, I was really just bit by the bug. We started looking for more deals and we got into a few more. And about that time, my time commitment was with my franchise business, Minuteman Press, and my time commitment with my real estate investing business and really where my passion was in the real estate. Those two were were kind of pulling at each other in opposite directions, right? And so it was a decision that my wife and I made that I would sell the franchise business and focus exclusively on real estate. And so that's what I've been doing for the last three years, full-time active real estate investor. Oh, wow. So I have to ask first, because you mentioned Ruth Chris, do you guys get a lot of good perks from there? <laughs> like in yeah. terms of stakes and everything? Uh, yeah, it was, it, that, that was a very fond part of my life. I mean, I, I met some lifelong friends there and it was a great place to work. And the perks included 50% off, you know, oh, wow. so, <laughs> at, at any location, but about halfway through my tenure with the company, they went public. And so they started expanding at a rapid pace. And so I was helping them with some, you know, opening some new stores and things. And, and it was a lot of fun, but I always wanted to be in business for myself. And that's when I started looking at different opportunities. I went to a franchise show. I met the folks at Minuteman Press. I did some due diligence and jumped into that business and left the restaurant hospitality business. And then sometime after that, got involved in real estate. But 
50% off at Ruth's Chris. That was a good deal. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. when you when you decided to, you know, transfer over and fully commit yourself to real estate and you and your wife had that conversation of, you know, deciding to sell the franchise and then go full time into real estate. You know, at that point, like how many deals did you have under your belt? And then what made you comfortable with making that transition? Well, at that point, we had done three syndications, all as a GP. All the syndications that I've been involved with, were, we were all on the GP side of the transaction. And we could see that the cash flow was starting to build from those deals. And you know, my wife works full-time. And so we try to live humbly and below our means and everything. And we really saw what the future held for us if we kind of went all in on, on the real estate investing business. And so it was a calculated decision, you know, whereby there was an opportunity to sell the franchise to one of my employees that had the means and they put some money into it. And, and I was able to carry some of the debt for them for a period of time, which helped my transition period into real estate you know, with some additional revenue stream from the sale of the business for um, several years and, and is still ongoing. So that's how that happened. Got it. So if we can go back to when you first got started in real estate and you said that you had mentioned, you know, you started with a coach and then you guys worked together, started looking at deals together and you had purchased the first one. You know, can you talk a little bit about how you were able to find that first deal in terms of like, you know, the relationships you built, financing, and then also, you know, the market that you were in? Yeah. So while we were going out to these events and networking with people and we were seeking mentors and potential partners that we could work with, you know, we really didn't have much real estate experience. We'd read every book <laughs> available to us at the time and some of them more than once and really tried to educate ourselves and it was time to start taking action. And so what we did initially was we just started underwriting. When you're getting started, I mean, that's a great place to start is underwrite as many deals as possible. Okay. And then you start to get an idea for what a good deal looks like, what a bad deal looks like. You know, the more underwriting experience you get, it almost becomes second nature. And so um, through this process, we were contacting brokers and markets that we'd identified that we wanted to invest in. And, you know, the, the language and the lingo began to develop, right? Initially, um, we were nervous about, you know, what to say to a broker or what are they going to think of me? I have no experience. And, you know, we, we overcame some of those early ob objections from brokers. And, you know, over time, it, it, again, it just the vernacular started to develop. But how we found the first deal was through a, a broker relationship that we developed in Dallas, Texas. And, you know, they were feeding us a steady stream of deals to look at. We would underwrite all of them. We would tell them, even if the deal was not a good deal, we would tell them why we thought so. And I think that helped build our credibility as well. So, they brought us this, this opportunity in Dallas. It was a 79-door apartment in East Dallas on your way to Mesquite, Texas. And the numbers penciled out. It was a, was a C-class uh, neighborhood and a C-class property, but it had some good value add upside to it in that the rents were severely below the market competitors. And you know we put an offer in, we negotiated the deal, and they gave us the contract. And so that was exciting for us because it was the first time that we had a contract on a property. So... Awesome. Um, and so, you know, one of the things also is you had jumped in first into multifamily. And typically when people get into real estate, they think, you know, I need to go the single family route or I need to, you know, start off traditionally um, going into the single family route. What was about it that made you comfortable about going into straight into multifamily and getting this first 79 units instead of going into like a single family and starting off there? 
Great question. Probably just blind ambition. I mean, <laughs> where we first kind of got exposed to syndications and apartment real estate originally was through David Lindahl and his teaching program. That company is called RE Mentor. And, you know, we started going to events. We started networking with people. His training was great. I mean, we learned so much, but a lot of, you know, the dialogue in those teachings was, you know, the sooner you go big, you know, the better. And so we were just like, okay let's start buying apartments. And so, you know, today looking back and talking with um, other operators, you know, on an ongoing basis, I mean, we're always networking with as many people as we can. The traditional path that a lot of people take is, you know, flip some houses, flip some more houses, maybe a couple single family or duplex buy and hold. And, and then eventually you graduate into multifamily. I mean, right or wrong, we just dove right in. I mean, I still to this day, I've never flipped a house at some point, almost like to just so we can check that box. But I mean, we kind of hit the ground running based on our early training through David Lindahl, you know, go big or go home. And we, that really sunk in for us. And so, you know, for people who are looking to get into the space, they think like, well, it's a 79 unit apartment. I don't have the capital to buy a 79 unit apartment. Did you guys partner with other people in order to, you know, fund the deal? That's right. So through the process of going to the trainings and the workshops and the networking events, we we really put a focus on trying to align ourselves with mentors, potential partners that had more experience than we did, and possibly even a, a broader investor database. And so that's kind of how we did it. We identified a few folks that we like to work with. We continued our dialogue with them. And over time, our relationship grew. And as we're looking at deals, we would show these deals to some of those people that we could potentially work with. And by the time you know we submitted that offer on that Dallas deal, we had kind of already established a relationship with first mentors that had the experience, had done this process before, had raised capital before. And so they said that, you know, that they'd like to work with us. And so we did the deal together. So that's because you're right, first getting started, I mean. It's um, there's a lot of moving parts in a real estate syndication, and um, we absolutely needed help. And the one thing I can say is it's very much a team sport. Um, it takes a village to get one of these things across the finish line. And so we really tried early on to network with folks that we could work with, that we liked, and that we could do a deal with. Sure. And so for that first deal, you know, we kind of talked a little bit earlier and you mentioned, you know, for that first apartment, there was a story that went behind it after you guys had purchased it. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what had happened, you know, with that first deal. Yeah. So crazy story. I mean, first of all, the first couple of years in that deal, it, it was going great. We were rehabbing units, rents were raising, it was cash flowing, we we're making investor distributions and everything was fine. Well, the, the market in Dallas at the, you know, the time that we sold was going gangbusters, right? I mean, people were looking for deals. They were putting up crazy hard money. And we determined that after holding that one for three years, that we could achieve the goals and the objectives of the business plan in a shorter period of time. And so we decided to sell the property and everything was going fine. We're in escrow and the buyer completed their due diligence. And so now their earnest money is non-refundable and everything's tracking along. Well, halfway through escrow, past the point of the, the due diligence period had already expired, there was a fire. It was Friday night. I'll never forget. It was in July. And we get a phone call from the property manager said, hey, there's a fire and it's done significant damage. And the, our first thought is, of course, is everybody okay? I mean, we wanted to be sure that nobody was hurt or worse. And fortunately, that was the case. There were no injuries, but it did significant damage. So what had happened was fire broke out in the main mechanical room 
And this particular deal had a, a two pipe uh, chiller unit for the air conditioning of the property, which I wouldn't recommend. We don't look for those deals anymore. It's, that's a whole nother story. But regardless, the air conditioning was destroyed. The water heater was destroyed and the main electrical panel completely burned. So the heart, the lungs, and the brain of, <laughs> of this project all destroyed. So we're in the middle of escrow. And so everyone's looking at each other like, well, who's responsible for you know performing? Does the buyer have to perform? Does the seller have to perform? What happens to the earnest money? And it was quite a mess. The attorneys get involved. And it's a longer story than this. But basically, the, the, the huge takeaway from this experience from us was whenever you get involved with the purchase agreement, the PSA of you know buying or selling a deal, since that experience, we've paid particularly close attention to the section that talks about in the event of an insurance claim. So in these PSAs, it can be defined a variety of ways. It could be a fixed dollar amount, or it could be a percentage of the purchase price. But essentially, there, there's language in all these purchase contracts that say, is it the buyer that has to perform or the seller has to perform in the event of uh, an insurance claim? And from the seller's standpoint, you want that number to be as high as possible. And then as the buyer, you want that to be as low as possible because if there's a claim and it exceeds whatever number that is, however it's defined, then the buyer has the right, no matter where we're at in the process, to walk away from the deal and receive 100% of their money back, their earnest money no matter if it's gone hard or not. And so that was a valuable lesson for us. And the short story is it ended up being a $1.2 million claim. We had diesel powered on trailers, you know, temporary units for the HVAC. And remember, this is July in Dallas, so it's hot. A temporary water heater and, a, and a, this special electric you know, to, to supply uh, power to the deal. All burning diesel fuel 24 hours a day and we had two shifts twice per day would come a big truck full of diesel and they'd fill it up. We were burning 800 gallons of diesel a day to keep that deal basically able to have it occupied. So it was quite a bit of damage. In the end, the, the buyer hung around. There were several uh, contract extensions and we feel that he got a, a better deal than he bargained for. But most importantly, A, no one was hurt and B, the investors all did really well on that deal. So we were pretty happy in the end, but there was a lot of heartburn. <laughs> Um, we love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us, because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. Yes, absolutely. So did you guys ever determine what was the cause of the fire? It had something to do with one of the electrical wires was loose or something. I don't re recall exactly what was the reason, but after they did the inspection and their investigation on how you know this started, it, it had something to do with a loose electrical connection. So, I mean, this this property was built in the '60s, and you know we felt that our maintenance staff was always maintaining the deal well and keeping up with all the maintenance requirements of a 60s product, but it was something with the electrical in that kind of mechanical room. 
So then from the buyer side and the seller side, do you guys come up with a, a good negotiation on who would be ultimately be responsible for that? Well, because it happened on our watch, it was our responsibility to... Well, let me back up. It, it could have gone a couple of different ways. We could have potentially assigned the insurance benefit from the claim to the buyer and let him deal with the, the renovation and, and fixing the problem. There was a lot of negotiating and a lot of legal. Our attorneys were involved and everything. But in the end, in this case, we decided that we would handle the renovation. We would collect the insurance claim from the claim and we would fix the property. So it added months to the transaction process because we had contractors out there and we had to fix the problem because that was what was agreed to. But the buyer hung around. I mean, there was several, you know, at least five or six contract extensions and he didn't want to leave the deal so you know we just worked the problem and you know in the end he bought a deal with brand new equipment so i think he got a better deal than he even thought even though it was stressful at times to say the least Oh yeah. And I think something that you kind of pointed out too, you know, the way you guys had handled the situation, it's like a long-term relationship that you're trying to create. You're trying to make it like a good relationship and making it sure that, you know, both sides of the party are satisfied and they're getting what they're looking for. And not one side is just taking advantage of the other side, because in this business, you're trying to create long-term relationships later down the road. You never know if you're going to be working with them or not, you know, so you just want to keep that good established relationship. That's a great point, Eileen. You know, we have learned quite a bit, you know, since being in the business, but it's a small world out there. And I mean, I know you know this. I mean, when you're out looking at deals and talking with brokers, investors, I mean, it's really is a small community and you never know when you're going to come across this particular seller again. I mean, he might sell us a deal or we might buy a deal from him. I don't, you know, either way. So. And so for now, uh, so you also said that now when you look at the PSAs, you focus, prim- you, you pay close attention on this section where it talks about the insurance claim. So uh, what particular language do you guys look for in that section? If you can, can please share a little bit. Well, the most recent deal that we did was in um, Arkansas. We bought an 89 unit property there. And that was one of the final linchpins, I guess, between buyer and seller is you know settling in on what that number will be and and like i said it, it can be defined you know each contract is different it can be defined in a variety of ways it can be just a set dollar amount so buyer and seller agree that if there's an insurance claim that is above $250,000 then the buyer can walk and get all of their earnest money back and the seller is stuck with the bill or it can be defined as a percentage of purchase price. If we're looking at a $10 million apartment deal and you know we get to this insurance piece in the contract and they say, okay, if it exceeds 10% of the purchase price, which is the same thing as saying, well, a million dollars, right? So the bottom line is the seller wants that number to be as high as possible and the buyer wants that number to be as low as possible. And that's the, the, the key takeaway, right? Because you know, since that fire, we had done two deals you know, before that. And, you know, so I'd looked at two other purchase agreements and was involved with the attorneys and proofreading drafts one, two, three, four, till it's ready to sign. And, you know, I'd always read the insurance section, but I, it never really, you know, I'm like, okay, you know, sure. If there's an insurance claim above whatever, then sure, whatever, you know, like that'll never happen. (laughs) And so, you know, since that fire happened now, you know, the purchase contracts that we've negotiated since then, you know, I'm just extra sensitive to that piece. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so interesting that, 
the events that happen to us and like listening to stories like yours, it's just like things that we can remember and things that we can make sure to take a look at and be extra cautious about as we're looking at different legal documents and making sure that we're really paying attention to everything with a fine tooth comb because you never know what's going to happen. Absolutely. And that's not to discount all the other pieces in a purchase agreement. I mean, the whole document's important, really, and it should always be read. But, you know, based on our experience with that fire in escrow, now we're like, okay, let's make sure that we really understand this because you just don't know. I mean, storm, fire, anything can materially change the deal. And you have to understand what your right is as a buyer or a seller. So. Yes, definitely an expensive lesson to learn. But at the same time, thank you so much for sharing us so that we don't make the same mistakes. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so for you, Rob, what is next for you and what are you looking to focus on? The two lowest common denominators, of course, are deal flow and investor flow. So I have a partner in my business that's focused on looking for deals. So he's got lots of relationships with brokers. We're underwriting multiple deals every week. We submit LOIs on deals. So you know, that's the deal flow side. And then I'm more focused on investor relations. And so talking with investors, educating investors, you know, and, and really helping investors to achieve their financial goals and, and you know, whatever those look like. We believe that this is one of the best vehicles for wealth creation and, and passive income stream that you can find. And so I spend a lot of time, you know, educating investors and talking with them about, you know, what their goals are and see if it's a right fit for them, if it's a right fit for us to take a look at, you know, future projects that we're working on. And especially in this environment that we're in, you know, we're coming on to like a post-COVID type of environment um, in terms of like an acquisition standpoint. And when you're looking at evaluating deals with the investors as well, what are some of the things if you can share that um, has kind of changed in your strategy? Well, as far as the deal itself and the underwriting, I mean, through COVID and, and now, I guess, pseudo post-COVID, uh, as of today, things seem to be opening up little by little, but paying close attention to delinquency loss and bad debt and really understanding when you're looking at a potential acquisition, what's happening there and asking those questions. As far as today's real estate cycle, where we're at, I mean, obviously, it's a pretty competitive environment in, in uh, apartment real estate, but we believe that there's opportunity in every phase of the cycle. Clearly, as you know, there's been cap rate compression. There continues to be reduced yield in the marketplace and lots of competition. And but I still believe that there's there's good deals out there. I mean, we we submit LOIs on deals. We're just extra cautious today more than ever about what the cash flow is coming out of you know once we acquire and paying close attention to delinquency loss. You know, because a lot of Americans were impacted by job loss, et cetera, as a result of COVID. So, Rob, how has real estate investing impacted your life? Well, me personally, you know, it's produced additional income streams that have allowed me flexibility of time with, you know, to spend more time with my family. I can go to my daughter's, um, you know, graduation ceremonies and and help coach her soccer team and things like this that, you know, previously I, I may not have been able to make all of those events. But more than that, I really like the impact of helping our investors. I mean, we get calls, we get notes from our investors all the time, especially, you know, after a distribution or after we've taken a deal full cycle that means a lot to me that you know we're able to help others achieve their financial goals and their wealth goals so i really like the impact that that has on you know our investing community and what is one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started start raising money immediately you know i think we did that kind of backwards we started looking at deals first and and it worked and it it will work for anyone that's getting started 
it's really a two-pronged approach, right? And you have to be looking for deals, but you also have to be raising capital and, and networking with investors that are interested in your product and your investment opportunities at the same time. And so for the first couple of years, we were mostly focused on the deal hunting and not as much on the investor side outside of you know friends and family, but it, it really is both sides of that business. I mean, those are the two lowest common denominators, You know, find a deal and find some investors. So I wish we would have put more emphasis on educating more investors early on. You know, And today we're trying to do that a lot more. So, And if there's one thing that sets the successful people apart in the real estate investing business, what would that be? Perseverance and consistency. I mean, this doesn't happen overnight. You get knocked down quite a bit. I mean, we're, we're submitting offers on deals that most of them go nowhere and it can be frustrating at times, but I think being consistent and, and being, you know, having persistence, that's two of the biggest contributors to our success so far. And do you have any tools or techniques that you can share with us today that you've used to improve the efficiency of your business or your personal life? You know, recently we've started getting involved with outsourcing some of the day-to-day activities that maybe are you know, sucking more of my time and maybe not as productive to virtual assistants. We publish a lot of videos and things. We have a YouTube channel. Every time I go tour properties or if I'm um, looking at a new deal, I try to film a short video, again, just to educate investors what we look for. This is what a good deal or a bad deal looks like. Just any kind of nugget that I can share. And post-production, as you know, running a podcast, that's very time-consuming. And so We've recently started, you know, looking for some virtual assistants that can help us take off some of these just tasks that take a lot of time, but they're not getting us closer to our goals, uh, you know, any faster. So awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that, Rob. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Eileen. Thank you. So, Rob, if our listeners wanted to find out more about you, where is the best place to go that they can reach you and learn more? Um, they can find me on LinkedIn, Rob Overstreet, or my email address is rob at harbordriveholdings.com. But probably the best place is our website, you know, harbordriveholdings.com. And there's an opportunity if anyone's interested, they can jump into our investor club and we send out monthly real estate information. And it's kind of our main pipeline for exposing any deals that we're working on or showing people, you know, the opportunities and the things that we're looking at. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Rob. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Eileen. Talk to you soon. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonifestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.